0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, does the Jewish community feel safe in Tucson? A traditional folktale from China retold in The Drum and the Story. And a conversation with Lisa Napoli, about her book, Ray and Joan. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. This weekend, Jews around the world celebrate the holiday of Purim. It commemorates the failure of a plot to assassinate the Jews of Persia back in the 4th century BCE, or before the Common Era. The Jewish community of Tucson will be celebrating with the usual costumes, carnivals, and exchanges of sweets. But some will also be coping with fear and sadness after the February 17th bomb threat at the Tucson Jewish Community Center. Do Jews feel safe in Tucson? Laura Markowitz has the story.
1: Since January, a wave of bomb threats targeted Jewish community centers, schools, and synagogues. So for the Tucson JCC staff, the call was almost expected.
0: We were well aware and well informed since mid-January when this wave of calls to JCCs began.
1: Todd Rockoff is executive director of the Tucson JCC.
0: We used those opportunities to continue to reinforce our procedures.
1: They already had 24-hour video surveillance in place and security guards patrolling the campus. Every staff member at the JCC is trained from day one on security protocols. None of these safety measures are unusual for a Jewish institution in the United States. That's because more than half of reported anti-religious hate crimes target Jews. That's according to the FBI.
0: Nationally, and perhaps locally, there is reason to treat things with an abundance of caution.
1: Jewish people are used to walking past police officers at the doors of their synagogues, especially during the high holidays.
2: I think that there is a balance that we try to strike about being welcoming
1: and not being paranoid. That's Michelle Blumenberg. She's executive director of the Hillel Foundation on the University of Arizona's campus. The Jewish student group decided not to have law enforcement at their high holiday services, But they did install 24-hour video surveillance cameras in their building last summer. As
2: the Jewish community on campus or as the Jewish community in any community, we need to be a little bit more aware of our security because of anti-Semitic concerns.
1: Hillel staffers also get trained on safety and security protocols. And when the bomb threats started, they had extra trainings. We have the bomb threat procedures and a checklist. It's next to our phones. We had UAPD come in. What do you do if an active shooter comes in? Hillel is one of a number of vulnerable groups on campus that took the training. Blumenberg says there hasn't been any reported rise in anti-Semitism on campus, but students are aware that it's happening in other places.
3: They wonder, will something happen? Do I need to be careful? Hmm,
0: I wonder if they're going to start on Hillel's. Anti-Semitism is always there beneath the surface.
1: That's Brian Davis, executive director of Tucson's Jewish History Museum. He says when Jews worry about anti-Semitism, it's not paranoia.
0: It's part of the historical record, also a contemporary reality.
1: For example, the day after the presidential election,
0: which also happened to be the date of Kristallnacht,
1: someone spray-painted anti-Semitic graffiti around Tucson.
0: With Jews you lose.
1: That's what it said. The graffiti has shown up in half a dozen other locations around the city since then.
0: The signs are hard to read, but, you know, the way that many Jewish people read them built into that reading is a lot of deep, intergenerational fear.
1: The Holocaust was only the most recent example of attempted genocide of the Jewish people. Stuart Mellon is president and CEO of the Jewish Federation of Southern Arizona. He says Jewish history documents attempts by anti-Semites to exterminate the Jewish people over thousands of years. Our narrative in our Jewish history has a lot to do with us being the other and being uh, persecuted. There's an old joke. It says, All Jewish holidays can be summed up this way. They tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. (laughs) Why do Jews focus so much on past persecution? We're actually commanded to remember so that it will impact on the way we live our lives. Especially to develop empathy for others who are targets of hate. This is not unlike what uh, the Muslim community has gone through, seen in African Americans, uh, people of color, our LGBT community. Mellon says the antidote to hate is building bridges and becoming allies. Teaching people how to do that is the mission of a new initiative called We Stand Together. It was recently launched by the YWCA of Tucson and the Southern Arizona Hate Crimes Task Force. Brian Davis is co-chair.
0: It's really reassuring to get communications from across the community, sharing their concerns and expressing their solidarity
1: with the Jewish community. We stand in solidarity with our Jewish brothers and sisters. Umar bin Shahid showed up in person the day after the bomb scare. He brought the JCC a bouquet of flowers. We definitely condemn any kind of violence act or hatred or bigotry being a Muslim. Bin Shahid is the public outreach coordinator for the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. He has firsthand knowledge of what it's like to be targeted because he survived a bombing at his mosque in Pakistan. His Muslim community has been raising money to restore vandalized Jewish cemeteries in St. Louis and Philadelphia. Todd Rockoff came out of a meeting to shake bin Shahid's hand and thank him for the flowers.
0: I'm so grateful. The desired outcome was to divide and cause fear.
1: But here in Tucson, it created an opportunity for diverse people to become allies against hate. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz.
0: You can visit us online at azpm.org to learn about the We Stand Together movement, which offers to teach Tucsonans how to be allies in the face of hate speech and harassment. Since ancient times, among the first things people shared were the drum and the story. This time, our storyteller is Carol Feddersen, representing the Confucius Institute at the University of Arizona with musical accompaniment by Chen Lei Li.
3: You the Great Subdues the Flood, retold by Carol Feddersen. From Gilgamesh to Noah's Ark, flooding has been an important topic in many ancient legends throughout the world. These legends record the history of mankind's struggle with floods. China's famous legend about humans versus floods is called You the Great subdues the flood. About 4,000 years ago in the central plains of China, the Yellow River, the He, overflowed. The river flooded an enormous area. Many villages and towns were flooded. People's homes were underwater. They had to flee from their homes with only what they could carry and go to higher ground. Many people had to walk for days and days. Farmers' fields were completely underwater. The crops had too much water and died. The animals had a hard time with the flood. If they could swim, they could get to high ground. But if they could not swim, they drowned. Farmers had nothing left. Emperor Yao ordered Gun to subdue the flood. Gwen brought in experts to give him advice. One expert told Guan to dig a deep hole so the extra water would drain away, but it didn't work. Another expert told Guan to burn incense to stop the rains. That idea did not succeed either. The emperor said that Gwen was not working hard enough. Emperor Yao ordered Guun's son, Yu, to placate the flood. Yu had a new idea. He called together the people who were affected by the flood. They wanted to return to their villages and rebuild their homes and businesses. The farmers wanted to return to their lands, plant crops and raise animals. They inspected the river and discussed how it flowed and why it flooded. They discussed their findings and reasons with you, who listened to them, and considered all of their findings and suggestions. You thought very hard and long about what he learned from the people. As a result, you considered a new method. His father blocked the flooded river by making the banks very high, but the water still overflowed. You thought that the water should not be blocked, but be led away in another direction. Because the river was wide and long, You studied the different landforms around the river. Using this method, he dredged the earth to create nine rivers. You focused on subduing the floods by channeling the extra water into nine new rivers. It took him a long time, 13 years in fact, He worked very hard, not stopping. Actually, he did not go home, even though he passed by it three times. The people were very happy. They honored Yu by nominating him to be emperor. They respectfully called him Yu the Great. While Yu was learning to subdue the flood, he learned many things about the landforms, customs of the people, and products of each area. He noticed the differences and set up laws specific to each region. He divided Xia into nine provinces, which explains why we call China Zhou Ziu Jiao Zhou means the number nine. In order to subdue the flood, one needed wisdom. Yu was a fountain of wisdom. He understood the principle of water. When it meets soft, it becomes gentle. And when it meets hard, it becomes rigid. An important development made the people very happy. When the workers were digging the channels, they discovered underground water. They built wells, giving the people a dependable water source. From then on, China has dug wells. To this day, archeological experts are looking for more artifacts that tell about you the great subduing the flood.
0: Carol Feddersen is a student of Chinese music at the Confucius Institute at the University of Arizona. One of her instructors, Chin Lei Li, played the kuzang. Next month on The Drum and the Story, we'll hear another traditional tale from far away. The recent film, The Founder, starring Michael Keaton, portrayed the story of how a man named Ray Kroc was able to turn the fast food innovations of the McDonald brothers into an empire worth billions. But there's much more to the story, as writer and radio producer Lisa Napoli discovered when she began researching her book, Ray and Joan, The Man Who Made the McDonald's Fortune and The Woman Who Gave It All Away. Digging deep into newspapers and legal records, Napoli explored the public and private lives of the McDonald's first family. She was especially interested in what drove the publicity-shy Joan into supporting causes she believed in with the same drive and keen business sense as her husband. I asked Lisa Napoli what she thought each of them was most attracted to in the other.
2: I think what Ray saw in Joan was first her physical beauty. Then it was her talent and proficiency as a pianist, which he shared and admired in others, and particularly with her. But it was also her spirit more broadly, just how zealous and passionate she was about everything that she did. I think what Joan saw in Ray was similar in that he had ambition, and he always wanted more. He was never satisfied with what he had. And there was an element of that to her, too, especially at the moment in time when her life collided with his. But I think overall, what connected them was McDonald's because he was so passionate about McDonald's when he met her. He always was, but he had just sort of got, quote unquote, the religion of McDonald's when they met and she was swept up in this startup phase of McDonald's when they first connected, and that carried them through.
0: The restaurant franchise played a huge role in their lives and seemed to give them something almost equal to a child for them to, <laughs> you know, manipulate and indulge in.
2: Yeah, you know, it's funny you say child. I was going to say it's like sharing an alma mater or something, but it was it was sort of like a child to them. He was so passionate about it, and she was so committed to it because her first husband got asked to manage a McDonald's and was so good at it that then he got the right to buy into McDonald's. This was a time when it was reasonably inexpensive to buy into McDonald's, but if you worked really hard, the payoff could be enormous, sort of like... If you had a couple shares of Google stock when it first went public, or Amazon stock is probably a better correlate. So the two of them, independently of the other, really were wedded to the business and seeing it succeed from different vantage points. And that definitely did carry them through. Once McDonald's went public and Ray became enormously, enormously rich. She uh, married him, and that was sort of their alma mater, if you will. They were still involved, of course. He was still involved till the end of his life, but it was something they they could never forget.
0: You touched on a period of time that was a very interesting um, thing to read about when they weren't just Ray and Joan, but they were two points of a love quadrangle because both of them were married. And... Joan's husband, who uh, went by the name Raleigh, was a manager for uh, Ray Kroc and seemed to enjoy that role and seems like a guy who wasn't really all that threatened by the idea that Ray and Joan may have been having a relationship.
2: Yeah. You know, that's the sort of mysterious part of all of this to me. Um, I've heard different things. There was nothing written about it, so... Uh, I could never really deduce it. You know, Joan and Raleigh married when they were very young. Uh, it's not uncommon for marriages to unravel when people start very, very young, in particular, because they, you know, they grow in different directions. Um, but I think that also Raleigh was, you know, much more of an easygoing fellow. From all I've I've been able to to deduce about him. So he had a completely different personality than Ray did. Ray was very uh, jealous as well as very ambitious and Raleigh was more low key. So I think that that probably played into it as well. He he seemed more accepting of Joan and all her peccadillos, so to speak. (laughs) Uh, Yeah.
0: Well, when you say peccadillos, one thing that comes up, uh, especially towards the end of their relationship, is Ray's alcoholism and the effect that it had on Joan and what it motivated her to do in her community and, and for the country. Um, a very interesting aspect to her story that I really knew nothing about going into the book.
2: Certainly the alcoholism fueled and propelled her in a way that made me really admire her as opposed to sort of reverting into her darkness that was a result of rays. Uh, She saw it as a way to help other people, which made me admire her so immensely.
0: And those are the first few steps that she seems to take in the direction to the life she would lead once she was a widow, sharing the money from Ray's McDonald's fortune with a lot of causes, including anti-nuclear causes and uh, peace protests.
2: Yes. It's so interesting. It definitely is true that her work with alcoholism education... Uh, sort of ignited for her this recognition that she had this station in life that gave her a perch that allowed her to do something. And um, rather than just do it by writing checks, which would have been totally fine, she was much more involved and engaged. And when, after Ray's passing, she became engaged with the peace movement because of people she was running around with, she became so immersed in it that you know just writing a check wasn't enough she she did write checks to Notre Dame to start a peace institute there to help fulfill the the dream she'd heard the president of the university uh, Father Ted Hesburgh say that he wanted to accomplish. But then she started buying ads in newspapers uh, and and commissioning a song that was sent to every radio station in the country and deploying these very McDonald's-like techniques in getting the word out about her passion for the no-nukes movement. And I Again, that made me really love her because she really wished she could have been more educated. She hadn't been. She came from a very poor family at a moment in time when it was very unusual for women to be educated, even if they were from wealthier families. And yet she used her entire life as a a way of learning and growing and doing. And big emphasis on the doing part because she could. She had this money. She wanted to apply it to something that was useful.
0: When Joan died in 2003, I remember hearing the news uh, come across the airwaves on NPR and then not too long afterwards, news of an unusually large gift, the largest in NPR's history that came from the reading of her will. Tell us about that gift and some of the controversy that surrounded how that money may have been used.
2: Well, it was uh, quite amazing When this gift was announced, uh, because NPR was not expecting it. It had received a nice gift, a very generous gift from her a few years earlier, uh, but nothing in the order of the $225 million plus gift that this behest was, her posthumous behest. And um, it was controversial in the sense that uh, NPR just didn't know how to announce it, what to do with it. Um, Organizations or people who are the recipients of such large uh, behests are often in this awkward position of wanting to announce it, needing to announce it, but also, oh my goodness, what if that's going to cut off a steady stream of donations from other people who've supported us? And it's made more complicated by the fact that people, when they listen to NPR, aren't really clear if we're... um, how the, the various complexities of the network. NPR, the network is different than Arizona Public Media. You know, the, all the different breakouts, the stations, and um, that's confusing for people when they give money to a station. And NPR, the network, not the individual stations, got this huge gift. And they had to be mindful of how that impacted donor giving to each individual station. What they did decided to do was put half of the money into their endowment, meaning it's like a big bank account for a nonprofit organization that never gets touched, and the interest accrues, and it helps fund various uh, and sundry projects within the the network. And then the other part was put into operating capital, so it was used more immediately. Uh, and, and so. It was a hard gift, as was the gift that the Salvation Army got that was 10 times larger, um, that close to $2 billion that the Salvation Army got. Both organizations were in awkward positions because they were so proud to have been entrusted with so much money from Mrs. Kroc, but it was also opening up big cans of worms.
0: What were the main resources that you used to uncover this history?
2: Wow. You know, everything from archives, not Hers because she hadn't kept any, but archives that her brother-in-law kept for the Croc Foundation, which gave way to Jones Foundation. Um, many, many people who I sleuthed out, who were many of them who were much older. Um, newspapers and magazines that were hard to dig up because they were from the 70s and 80s, weren't digitized, uh, but those were very helpful. Various other books, some self-published by people in and around the McDonalds zeitgeist. um, A lot of legal documents, including the divorce papers of Ray from his first wife and Jones threatened divorce from from Ray. Uh, Yeah, fascinating, strange, (laughs) You must have been driven
0: because that would be some pretty dry reading, a lot of what you just cited. Uh, Lisa, why was it important to write this story for you? It must have taken really a backbreaking amount of research. So what kind of story were you looking for when you began?
2: Well, you know, I was so intrigued by the idea of this woman who gave in such interesting ways. Of course, I knew her name from, uh, you know, from the gift to NPR, but I knew next to nothing else about her. And when I learned about the enormous breadth of her giving and the inventiveness of it, that really compelled me to dig. And she didn't really want a book written about her. Uh, She died sort of telling people around her not to talk to somebody like me, which I've never really understood, because what she did was so remarkable and groundbreaking. And, you know, you hear about Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, and it's terrific what they've done and are doing. But Joan was did it first she gave it all away and I just I'm so drawn to stories of people who give um, especially inventively I'm looking always for ways to give myself in meaningful ways and just you know of course certainly I don't have that kind of money at my disposal. Most people don't. But I still am looking for ways to make my life meaningful, especially now that I'm older. And Joan did that. And I think there's just so much that we can all learn from someone like that. I also thought, you know, you hear her name every day, at least a couple of times on public radio. If you listen to public radio, don't you wonder, who, who is this woman? And so I thought this would be an interesting book for anybody who listens to public media to know uh, the source of this, this angel who came along and really helped write the financial ship of the network. So the point about alcoholism that we touched on a few minutes ago really, really struck me too, that she made a choice to stay in a marriage to Ray, uh, which was very difficult. And, you know, cynics would say, of course she did. He was rich. But it wasn't quite that simple. It was much more nuanced and textured. And the idea that she saw this marriage as a way to help other people um, in a similar difficult situation at a time when people didn't discuss openly the impact of alcoholism on, on, of course, the person who was drinking, but, of course, the entire family, uh, that was really pioneering. And that made me even more committed to, to getting her story out. I thought it could help, help people.
0: My guest was Lisa Napoli, talking about her book, Ray and Joan, The Man Who Made the McDonald's Fortune and The Woman Who Gave It Away. Lisa will be a guest at this weekend's Festival of Books, with a book signing and two talks on Saturday. On Sunday, she'll give a writing workshop and host a panel discussion. You can find a complete schedule of all the events at TucsonFestivalOfBooks.org. Arizona Public Media will be at the Festival of Books in Tent 321. That's right in front of the Modern Languages Building. We'll be offering behind-the-scenes tours of our studios and a chance to meet AZPM reporters and staff, including some favorite characters from PBS Kids. You can find the details at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. The music is by Calexico, the production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.